Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when the people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when the people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we hear from you for your word, uh, that you would strengthen us, that you would prod us to action, and that you would still in us a sense of your grace and your mercy and your love. Amen. So, uh, last few weeks, uh, this happened on the internet. Too hard. <laughs> Should we try the <laughs> Sorry? Okay. It didn't go through. Let's so that was, a, that was a plus side. Let's try the right. Try that one, really? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's the best. What a, uh, a great and great thing to happen. Uh, and for those playing at home, if you're listening on the recording, then uh, what we've just seen is the Tesla armoured truck with armoured glass, uh, recently boasted by Tesla and Elon Musk particularly, um, and at their live demonstration, an iron ball thrown at the said armoured glass uh, proved it to not be as armoured as they had originally thought, much to the hilarity of the world. What a great video, and what a great illustration, I think, of life. How, you ask? It's a good question. Because I think that lots of people, particularly when you're younger in life, kind of feel like an armoured-plated vehicle. You're invincible, invulnerable. 
You can do whatever you want to do. You can't really be harmed. You're young, you're vibrant, you're youthful, you're invincible. Now, you kind of know. You know that life doesn't last forever and that you grow old and die. But that experience seems a million miles away. Until one day, someone comes along and throws a steel ball at you. Perhaps literally, but potentially more symbolically. You get sick. You start getting pain in your legs or your hips or your back. You can't party all night and then get up and run a marathon like you used to be able to. And the idea of going to a concert where the band starts playing at 10pm and there's nowhere to sit down becomes offensive to your sensibilities. I'm there. In other words, a steel ball of mortality hits you and something shatters. What do you do then? Well, you can try and accept that you are, in fact, going to die. But that proves really, really difficult, mostly because in our age, our culture devalues aging and is terrified of death. And so instead of accepting it, we try and fight it. Every now and then, an article will pop up about some scientist who's worked to find a technological solution to death, uh, either cryogenics or artificial organs or some sort of cell renewal, or simply uploading human consciousness into a robot so that you can walk around forever. Others attempt more normal strategies, midlife crises, for example. These, those, those sorts of midlife crisis that's fueled by fear of death. The thought goes that if I buy a sports car or go bungee jumping or dress like someone half my age or marry someone half my age, I won't feel so old anymore. I can somehow hold off the inevitable. Others instead uh, try and fight the effects of death on the body. The makeup industry makes billions on the fear of death. The right cream, the right powder, the right colour will make you younger, make you look younger, and so perhaps you will be younger. Plastic surgery is even more normal and popular than it's ever been before. In fact, in fact I recently learned that people now go in for preventative plastic surgery. However, it's getting plastic surgery on, on areas that have yet to actually show any signs of decay to try and ward it off at the pass. All this is to say that our culture has this really complicated relationship with death. In a life where nothing is certain, death is the one thing that is. Every second, people die, and we tell ourselves that we're okay with it, that it's a natural part of life. But if we're really honest, we're not okay with it at all. We don't like talking about death. In fact, we're so uncomfortable with the word that we come up with euphemisms for it. No one ever actually dies anymore. They pass away. They go to a better place. They rest in peace. They become a star or an angel in the sky. This is so common, particularly in funerals. We can't bring ourselves to face up to the undeniable fact that death is a hideous and unwelcome monster. It's really funny, a few hundred years ago, everybody talked about death. <laughs> Nobody thought it was morbid, but everyone talked about it all the time. Why? Because in an age of less advanced medicine, the age expectancy was much lower, people died much more often, 
and often more terribly. And so death was normal. People talked about it all the time. What they didn't talk about was sex. That was taboo, off limits. It's funny that in our age, the roles have been reversed. The taboos have been reversed. Nobody wants to talk about death, but sex is everywhere. Conversations about death are shushed. People say, that's so morbid, that's so depressing, don't talk about that. To talk about death is to face its reality, to admit that it's there and that it's a problem. It's to admit that pretty much from birth we live with one foot in the grave. The problem is that our culture simply doesn't have the resources to approach it. And without good resources, it's just horrible, it's too sad, and so better to repress it and hope maybe it goes away. The words of Ecclesiastes spoken into our day and age are shocking because the teacher, the main voice in Ecclesiastes, uh, his approach to death is shocking. In fact, it wouldn't be too far to say that he comes alive when he's talking about death. It happens over and over again. Death comes up with surprising regularity through the book of Ecclesiastes. Why is that? Well, let's think back over the series that we've had so far. And by now, we all know at least one word in Hebrew. And that word is... Havel. So good. Havel, translated in our Bibles meaningless, but literally means a puff of smoke. Life is Havel, a puff of smoke, because it's confusing, it's enigmatic, it's hard to understand, it's, it's transitory, it's frustrating, it's unpredictable. And from this, the teacher helps us see that all the things that people try to harness to find meaning in life are ultimately fruitless endeavours like chasing after the wind or grasping a puff of smoke. It's fruitless. And we've covered several of them in this series so far. Wisdom, relationships, control and power, work and pleasure. We've seen that each of these things by themselves are, are good things. It's good to pursue wisdom. It's good to pursue relationships and control and work and pleasure to a certain extent. But these, these things are simply powerless powerless if they're looked to, to to find true and ultimate meaning, purpose and satisfaction. And now, as we come to the end, the ultimate reason for this is revealed. Why can't we find meaning in any of these things? Why? Because everyone dies. Death is the reason life is Hevel. And if it wasn't for death, it turns out, all of these pursuits could actually work. If it wasn't for death, you could pursue wisdom, relationships, control, work, pleasure, and any number of other things, and you would probably be able to find real and deep satisfaction and meaning out of them. But none of them work because we all die. Now, as Christians, we know that death in the Bible, is the punishment for sin. We decide to reject God as the proper object of our love, instead choosing to love and trust in what God has made rather than who God is, than God himself. But it turns out from Ecclesiastes that death isn't just punishment for misplaced worship. It's also the reason misplaced worship doesn't work. Let me say that again. It turns out that death isn't just punishment 
for misplaced worship, for sin. It's also the reason misplaced worship, worshipping things other than God, doesn't work. Chasing after wisdom doesn't work because death overtakes both the foolish and the wise. They have the same end. Chasing after relationships doesn't work because death is the end of love. It brings relationships to an end. Chasing after control or power of your life doesn't work because you can't predict your own death. You can't gain control over that. Chasing after work doesn't work because death is the end of your legacy and your accomplishments. And chasing after pleasure doesn't work because death spells the end of enjoyment and happiness. The teacher tells us that while all these things are good gifts, they are simply incapable of saving us from the greatest enemy, which is death. If Hevel, meaninglessness, frustrating, whatever you want to say, if Hevel is the question of Ecclesiastes, why is life so hard to understand, then death is the answer. Life is so hard to understand because death casts a shadow over all life, making it the final enemy of humanity. So what does, exactly does the teacher say about death? Well, he says at least three things. The first is that death is inevitable. It is better, he writes, to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. <laughs> you who are into um, Marvel movies might know that the big bad guy, Thanos, says repeatedly throughout the series, I am inevitable. It's not, un, um, uh, it's not a coincidence because Thanos is a derivation of the word, the Greek word for death. He's trying to say death, personified in, in Marvel by this big bad guy, this is the ultimate enemy, is inevitable. It's the one thing we can be sure about is that we will all die. Rich and poor, old and young, progressive or conservative, blue collar, white collar, all have the same destiny. Death, in a way, is the great equalizer. Second, death is unpredictable. As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death, says the teacher. We all hope to live to a ripe old age and go gently in our sleep. That would be nice. But we simply cannot know that. Death can come swiftly and utterly unexpectedly. And third and finally, death is gradual. Gradual. By that I mean that death is a gradual process that actually begins far earlier than the definitive end of life. It's the process of decay that we experience even from our earliest moments. And this is the point of the final musings of the teacher in chapter 12. This kind of really ominous poem the teacher has composed, and it begins to describe the onset of old age. So let's have a look at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and clouds return after the rain. The teacher brings up this imagery from creation, from the book of Genesis, 
When the sun, stars, and the moon are come created and brought into being, roar into life, here is the opposite, in reverse. They, they begin to go out. Rain isn't followed by sunshine, just by more clouds. The lights of the star, as permanent and uh, consistent and reliable as they've always seemed to have been, suddenly begin to fade. The hardiness of youth that once offset the hard times of life is kind of not there anymore. And with old age, as faculties and senses fade, so too the pleasures you once enjoyed dissipate. It gets worse. The metaphors of the next passages are even more somber. Verse 3. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms, And the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire no longer is stirred. This sounds a bit confusing. What's he on about? Well, these are all metaphors for old age. Keepers of the house are arms. The strong men are legs. Grinders are, you guessed it, teeth. Windows are eyes. Doors are ears. Each one, uh, each part of your body, which was once strong and healthy, able to do what it was designed to do, maybe something you were super proud of, you never skipped leg day, or arm day, or eye day, I don't know what that is. You've never had issues with the dentist, you've got 20-20 vision. But with the onward march of time, each one eventually fails you. Arms will tremble, legs will stoop, teeth will be lost. Vision and hearing will fade. Your sleep will become light. You'll wake up super early, not because you want to, but because you have to. And your hair will go the colour of white almond tree blossoms. And your desire, libido, won't stir like it used to. My favourite author, Terry Pratchett, had the same sentiment, uh, but with a bit more humour. He wrote... Inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. (laughs) Death is inevitable. It's unpredictable. It's gradual. Perhaps the best image for death that I've ever seen is actually the Dementors in Harry Potter. They fly down to suck out all the joy and hope and happiness from a person. That's what death does. It sucks away all the good things. And yet, we won't stand for it. We can't stand for it. The history of humanity is a story of its tooth and nail fight against death in all its forms. We use every ounce of ingenuity and resource that we have to push it back. Why is that? Why do we do that? Well, Ecclesiastes tells us that too. In chapter 3, verse 9, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is the reason for our defiance of death. Somewhere deep within each person is a sense of eternity. 
some kind of memory, perhaps of long ago, before death has entered into our story, a time when we lived in a paradise of immortality. Perhaps we somehow have this memory of those, that time, this sense that we were designed for something more than death. We long for eternity, and not just living forever, but a way for death to no longer have mastery over our life under the sun, a way to stop it from corrupting and draining every bit of meaning that we find we can find in good things. But immortality, eternity, it's infuriatingly elusive. It's always just outside of our grasp. It's like trying to catch a puff of smoke. Try as you might, it escapes through your fingers. We know death is wrong, and yet we can't find a way to beat it. So it's fitting that the sayings of the teacher end just the way they began. Hevel, Hevel, says the teacher. Everything is Hevel. Meaningless. The teacher has come not just to the end of his book, but to the end of himself. He has explored every aspect of life under the sun as much as anyone can. He has pursued everything that seems good and pleasing and pleasurable. But no matter which way he turns, death is there waiting, unescapable. And so to his sorrow, he has to conclude that life is Hevel, utterly confounding. But we're not finished quite yet. Because there's another voice in the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher takes up most of it, but there's another voice, and we'll call him the narrator. He's the one who has edited this, this work of wisdom. He's brought together the, the teachings of the teacher and edited them into this volume. And he's got a bit to say before his work is done. He takes over the voice in the last few verses to give a commentary on all that has come before. That's what he says in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. They are collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Let's pause on this verse for a second. Here the narrator finishes with a challenge. The words of the teacher can't just be nice, interesting things to hear, but they actually have to do something to us. They should act. And firstly, as goads. What's a goad? A goad is a cattle prod. You know, to, be, to goad something, to, to be goaded on. So they should prod us to live wisely in accordance with what the teacher has said. Secondly, they're nails. Nails, why nails? Well, nails perhaps driven into fence posts that provide security and protection, something solid, something sure. And this is where Ecclesiastes must point us, I think. It points us to... These words being things that must prod and protect. And who prods and protects? Well, we're told, actually, that all wisdom is given to us by one shepherd. Who's that? Not the teacher. In the Bible, the shepherd is always uh, used as a word to describe God. He is the great shepherd who prods and protects the sheep. 
And of course, that points us to the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And this is where Ecclesiastes must point us. The narrator says the words of the teacher are just one part of wisdom, one section to all of God's wisdom. So we can't read it in isolation from the rest of the Bible. And if we do, we will become depressed and despondent, and the only outcome would be for us to give up on life. But we don't. We read it in response to the whole story of God. The narrator insists that we have to look at all the wisdom that God has gifted us through human authors. And so Ecclesiastes prods us to look for hope in a hopeless world. If it can't be found under the sun, we must look for somewhere above the sun for hope. It has to be found in one who is outside of this world and yet who loves the world, Jesus the Son of God. History now bends around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we can see why. Because it's the solution offered to us to escape a meaningless life. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, it sounded the death knell for death itself. Because for the first time in all of the time, someone shook off death's shadow. A life was lived that was not Havel. That was not meaningless. That was not without purpose. That was not frustrating, although it was frustrating for a time. Death's power in its, is, is in its ability to decay life. But when he rose, Jesus took away that power. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And those words echo down through history to every person who has ever felt hopeless, who has ever felt lost, who has ever felt like life is meaningless who feels like life is without hope and joy and happiness, who is sick of seeing good things become rotten, who feels let down by life, who feels exhausted from chasing the wind. For people who feel like a puff of smoke, only moments from being snuffed out of existence. To you, to us, Jesus says, I can make you solid again. If death is defeated and eternity lies open before us, then that opens up the life, opens up for the life we have now in a whole new way. Life can be truly enjoyed. We can enjoy work and pleasure. We can get wisdom and knowledge. We can feel loved in community and friendship and marriage. We can even get older with dignity. Life can be enjoyed without fear. When the weight of your trust is placed on the one who has overcome death. If death is the great enemy, then we must place our lives in the one who has defeated it. We will still feel the pangs and pains of death for now. But that can be overcome. They won't crush us or terrify us or bring us to the ground because we have been tethered to the one who has gone past death and has become immortal, has taken on eternity. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Ecclesiastes points us to find meaning and purpose in the shepherd who died and rose for his sheep.
But Ecclesiastes also prods us to something else. It prods us, yes, to look forward in our lives to the end and go, yes, in Jesus, death can be overcome. We can be risen, we can be raised with him. We can live forever with him. We can be brought into a new heaven and a new earth that will last forever. Yes, all these things are true for the end, but what about now? What does it mean for now? Well, a few years ago, Peter Hitchens, a Christian author and famous brother of Christopher Hitchens, um, was on Q&A. You might have seen the episode. It was a special episode to coincide with the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. So he was on with a panel of thinkers and philosophers and activists. And at the end of the episode, each panelist was asked, what is the most dangerous idea in history? And without hesitation, Peter Hitchens, when it came his turn, answered, the most dangerous idea in history is the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. Now, that could have easily just gone to the next person, but uh, the host, Tony Jones, was like, oh, I can't, can't leave it there. That's kind of a pat answer, Peter. Why? Why is that dangerous? He replied, well, it turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us. It alters us all. It is incredibly dangerous, and that is why so many people turn against it. Jesus' death and resurrection is a dangerous idea because it means that how you live now matters. Everything you do, every decision you make, matters. The gospel presents you with a choice. You can accept God's rule and trust in his son Jesus, or you can reject it and continue to try and make it on your own. And that is where Ecclesiastes ends. The narrator says, Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. You see, if there is a God who has paid the ultimate price to offer an escape from death itself, then quite simply we owe him our lives. We can no longer live carelessly. We can't live haphazardly. We can't be, uh, we can't be light with the, gift, the gifts he's given us. We can't ignore his scriptures and we can't just pick and choose the ones that we like. We can only give reverence to God. And that means to fear Him and keep His commandments. It persuades us to place our trust in God alone and not going back to trusting in earthly things and to live out that trust by loving Him, fearing Him, and keeping His word. Here is the last prod of Ecclesiastes that brings us to a close. True wisdom means coming to understand ourselves. It means force, it forces us to admit that we're all guilty of foolishness. In our ceaseless search for fulfillment, in wisdom, in control and power, in pleasure, 
in relationships and work and whatever else you could think of, we've actually produced casualties along the way. We've hurt, we've abused, we've consumed, we've been arrogant and selfish. We've hurt others and we've hurt ourselves because in running from death, we've allowed death to become us. That means that we cannot gain life without forgiveness and we cannot gain eternity unless we ourselves pass through God's judgment unless God brings to light every deed that we have done, whether good or evil. And that, family, is why the gospel of Jesus is so dangerous, because it asks us to admit that we need a saviour. In our foolishness, we need someone who can become wisdom for us. In our foolish lives, we need someone who can live wisely on our behalf. It asks us to come before the empty cross. Sorry, it asks us to come before the empty tomb and yet before that to become before the occupied cross. To see where Jesus died and experienced death in every conceivable way. When the shadow of God's judgment fell on him completely, atoning for our foolishness so that the guilty can be set free to, become, to be innocent and the dead can rise immortal. Friends, when you come to that gospel, when you accept that incredibly dangerous idea, then suddenly you find that not all is Havel. We actually find that we can catch the wind. Not in our own wisdom, but in the one who is wisdom and is life and is resurrection forever and ever. So let's come to him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are foolish. We have chased after our own wisdom only to find that it is just death for us. We have chased all sorts of things. We've put our trust in them, in our work, in our pleasure, in our relationships. And we've sought to, to find in them something that can bring us past the greatest enemy, death itself. And we have failed. Father, teach us about our failure and help us to come before the cross of Christ and to see in that crucified Messiah hope for the world, joy to the world. Father, may we come to him and live a life trusting in Jesus, knowing that if we do, not only will we gain eternal life forever and ever, but we will learn what it looks like to live wisely, to fear you, and obey your commandments in the life that we have now. And in doing so, Father, we know we will enjoy every good thing as a gift. So, Father, instill in us your wisdom and help us to live it out in the everyday stuff of our lives. Amen.